Thank you, Daniel, and uh, thank you, Fred. Thank you, choir, and all of you. It's good to be back with you this week, and uh, I want to just, just tell you this. I want to take the month of August, and I want us to take each week and talk about different spiritual characteristics and really learn and understand the power of prayer. And this morning, though, what I want to do is uh, title the message this morning is How the Decline Begins, Principles to Avoid Wasted Potential. Um, we're going to look at, at Joshua chapter 7. My first sermon a few weeks ago was from Joshua 6. And I wanted to kind of follow this up and give us some reality, kind of a reality push of what exactly happened, uh, you know, after the walls fell down. I mean, get the picture here. You know, the walls fell down. They marched around the wall seven times. They never fired a shot, you know. I mean, and God brought the walls down. You know, like I told you guys, uh, that they've... They've, they've got Jericho, they've looked at it, they've found it. They actually found that the walls went outward, that God brought the walls down of Jericho. Now, and what happens is, the Bible says, is that Joshua's fame spread throughout the land. If you look at the end of chapter 6, it says his fame spread throughout the land. In other words, other people saw him. They feared the army, the, the, the Israelite army. They feared if they could beat Jericho what could God do with us? And so they heard of what was happening. But here's the problem. The problem is, is that they so quickly forgot. They so quickly forgot. How does the decline happen? You know, what are some principles that we need to be aware of? Look at me, if you will, to verse uh, 2 of chapter 7 of Joshua 7. All right? It says, Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, the east of Bethel, and told them to go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the people will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men and, and take it, and do not weary all the people, for only a few men are there. So about three thousand men went up, and they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about thirty-six of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gates as far as the stone quarries and struck them down the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell down, face down on the ground, before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads, which was a sign of mourning, guys. And Joshua said, Ah, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then would you do for your great name? Remember that our and that your. We'll come back to that. And the Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face, Joshua? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them in their own possessions. That, that is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go, consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this, for this is what the Lord, the, the God of Israel says. That which is devoted is among you. O Israel, you cannot stand against your enemies until you remove it. Then Joshua, son of Achim, 
said to, Joshua said to, uh, to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give him, this is verse 19, give him the praise. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me, Achan. Verse 20. Achan replied, it is true. I've sinned against the Lord and the God of Israel. This is what I've done. When I saw the plunder of the beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them. Again, remember, they went into, into Je- uh, Jericho and they were told to take nothing. And here's a man who let his greed get in him. And Achan says, I coveted them. That's always dangerous. They're hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent a messengers and they ran to the tent and there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and spread them out before the Lord. Verse 24. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver, the robe, the gold wedge, his sons, daughters, his cattle, donkeys, his sheep, his tent, all that he had to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him after they had stoned the rest, and they burned them over, the, over, the, uh, over Achan. They heaped a large pile of rocks, which remains to the day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Achor, even to this day. This last week, I started reading a book called um, um, Storm. I don't know if you've seen it. It's by Jim Cimbalitz. I would really highly recommend it for you. I love Jim Cimbalitz. One of my favorite prayer books is the one he wrote, first one he wrote on Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. Amazing book. Just a story of what happened at Brooklyn Tabernacle. But he wrote this book in 2014. And a friend of mine recommended it to me. And I was reading it. We were, we were away for a couple of days this week. And I was reading it. And, and, and he, he starts the book out by giving the night that Sandy rolled into New York. This is what he says. He says his wife was in Nashville doing some recording because the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. He said, and we'd heard about the storm coming. He said, we'd moved into an apartment building that downsized because her family's now all out. And he said, he said, I kept looking outside. He said, and as I would look outside, I would, you know, I would see, he said, it was an eerie kind of darkness. The wind was catching up and everything. He said, and then the storm began to hit, and it began to roll, and everything began to happen. He said, and then all at once, I looked down. And there, if you've ever been to New York City and Manhattan, the lights are bright and shining. They can be seen from the moon, I'm sure, because they're bright as they can be. And he said, I looked down, and for the first time in my life, all of Manhattan was totally dark. He said, it was like someone just flipped a switch off. He said, I began to think of our nation, and I thought, who's flipped the switch off of our nation? Why are we in such darkness? Why are we facing such challenges? What are we supposed to do, and how are we supposed to respond? How are we supposed to do that? Guys, if you look at the, 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 the rate of pornography in our nation, you know, it wouldn't surprise any of us to find out the rate of pornography among men what would surprise you is to find out the rate of pornography of young, young, young women. I remember a study that was done back in 2007, 2008. At that time, between 40 and 50% of young women, 18 and under, in our nation were having serious issues with pornography. I see it every day in my classes, among our students. It's pervasive in our culture. It's destroying our families. Look at me. What do we do when the light switch goes off? How do we respond? 
Do we put more locks on our doors and our churches? Do we simply just gather together in a huddle and try to protect what we already have? Is that what we do? No, that's the opposite of the Great Commission. That's not what we're supposed to do. Here's what happened to Joshua. Joshua had seen God move in amazing ways. He saw walls fall down that he had nothing to do with except obedience. He obeyed God and he marched. They didn't yell to the time that God told them to yell. They did exactly what God told them and God did exactly what he said he would do. He brought the walls down. God's only thing, think about this, just like it was in the Garden of Eden. Only one thing I tell you, don't eat from this tree. Only one thing I tell you, don't take anything because it's not your plunder, it's ours. He knew they would need that when they got to the place where they would establish their, their, their new place of where they were supposed to be, that land filled with milk and honey. They would need all of that to be able to pay for the rebuilding of the city is what they would need. He said, this is not your plunder. It was not Achan's plunder because he didn't, he didn't bring the walls down. God brought the walls down. He gave him one command. He said, don't take anything. So here they are, end of chapter 6. Joshua's on the nightly news every night. Everybody's interviewing him. Fox News is... You got a book, book uh, contract for him to already write about how you bring the walls down. Joshua's kind of feeling his oats a little bit. And then all of a sudden, it hits. They come to a little place named I. Now, guys, I'm from Tennessee. I know a lot of little places like I, don't you? My, 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 my dad was born in a place called Flinslick. It was, I mean, I was there the other day. It was, it has, he, was, he was born in Buffalo Holler, which is over here. Shake Rag Holler was over here, and it backed up to no man's land is what they called it. Let me tell you something. I mean, I'm serious. Rough place. Rough place. I mean, think about that. My mother, by the way, grew up in a community. You will not, you, you'll, you'll think I'm lying here, but it's the honest, goodness, truth. There was a guy who wrote a book several years ago about the funniest names for communities across our, across our nation, and they actually went to this community. It's a little community not far from where my dad grew up. And what happened was they moved there in the 1800s and they began to settle in this one area. And the story goes that they began to fight one night over what they were going to name the place. And one guy stood up and said, and just in anger said, this is the most nameless place I've ever seen. So they named it Nameless. I'm not exaggerating. I know small places. So imagine for a moment the armies of New York City. You just defeated them. Because that's what Jericho was. The walls were 80 foot high and 30 foot deep. People lived inside of them. The armies were known throughout the land. You didn't fire one shot, but you marched and you obeyed God and God brought the walls down. New York, I mean, Jericho fell. And then all of a sudden, you can start going down the road and you come to nameless. You think to yourself, wow, we're going to have the days off, aren't we? We can just send the third, fourth team, we can send our, 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 you know, our farm club, our single-A club out there, and they can, they can take care of this, no problem. What happens is the light gets switched off. What happened here? How did they end up in a mess where 36 men lost their lives in this powerful nation of Israel that had just seen the walls of Jericho fall without firing a shot? How could they end up running from Flynn's Lick. Let me give you several principles here. First of all, I want us to do, personalize this and ask this of ourselves as we go forward as a church. First of all, have we relaxed and let down our guard? The first principle you always see 
But when, when destruction comes and the lights go off, it's when we drop our guard and we think we got it all figured out. We think we can do anything without God. And we think we are so smart and so intelligent and so talented and so gifted. Or, so we, or you know, we've been trying to do it for churches. I, I, for years, I've heard people say that the Holy Spirit could lose, leave most of our churches. They wouldn't figure it out for three or four years because they're so programmatized. They don't even depend on the Spirit anymore. Come on, guys, how much time do we spend in prayer? Do you know, do you know only 12% of American families ever pray together? I'm not pulling that off the top of my head. That came from the American Family Association. Come on. The first thing that happens is when we drop our guard. We drop our guard. We, we let it down. We, we kind of like, well, you know, I deserve this. God, I've really been pushing, 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 pushing. Listen, if you're pushing without God, you will wear yourself out. There's a big difference between being spiritually, physically worn out and being spiritually weary. Trust me, you can go much further. You may get worn out a little bit, but if you've got God, just like Paul, set inside those jail cells, how did he do it? Because it was his spirit that was alive. He never turned his back. He never dropped his guard. Come on, look in the scripture. Look what happens, guys. All it takes is a moment, doesn't it? David glimpsing at Bathsheba. Because I was addicted to pornography as a 14, 15, 16-year-old kid. I know what that's like. And I know what kind of accountability I have to have in my life. And I continue to have in my life. For people, Mark Becton, who's pastor at Grove Avenues, over in Richmond, one of my, been one of my accountability brothers for 25 years. Dave Early, who's pastor in Ohio right now. Carl Barrington is down in Atlanta. I got a group of guys who do this because I don't trust me. You, that sounds silly. No. I've had 23,000 students in the last 10 years. Satan would like nothing more than for me to relax and drop my guard and destroy my reputation. And that's exactly what he's doing with us as a nation. We've dropped our guard for years. We've opened the door to compromise his word where we don't even preach his gospel anymore. We don't talk about repentance. We don't talk about anything like that. We, we preach a gospel made by men. Guys, I promise you the first step always happens when we relax and let down our guard. Number two, number two is when we underestimate the real enemy. When we underestimate the real enemy, I mean, come on, look what they did. Look what they did. Look, look how they acted. They underestimated the real enemy. I mean, come on, they, you know, they, they, they said, let's just send 3,000 people up there. That's all we need. Let's send 3,000 up there. Come on, man. We'll take this. The rest of us, we're tired. We'll sit back here. They underestimated their enemy. Guys, you see, we don't even talk about Satan anymore. I do a thing in my class on spiritual warfare, and 90% of my kids have never heard the phrase spiritual warfare in their whole life. They don't even know. Do you realize that Josh McDowell did a study in 2006 of Christian teenagers, Christian, te Christian teenagers, and found out that 68% of them did not believe that Satan was a real entity and did not believe that hell was a real place. So we're going to open our lives up to let Satan come in we don't acknowledge the real enemy. So what do we do? We watch more Oprah. We, we turn on more Dr. Phil. We try to philosophize things out of our life. We try to rationalize them away. We, we rationalize 
We ignore the real enemy. Let me tell you what, Satan wants to destroy us. That's exactly, he is our enemy. He is our enemy. He is not on your side. He is our enemy. Let me, let me share something with you here. It was interesting, a couple of years ago, I had my, my uh, um, brother, I called him. He got his AARP card. He was so excited because he could eat off the back of every, you know, uh, restaurant of every, you know, th- you know thing in, in, in the world. I mean, you know what I mean. You look in the back of it, 55 and older and all that kind of stuff. I refused to get my AARP card. <laughs> I don't know what it is exactly. I've just refused to get it, okay? But here, but anyway, my, my brother, my brother called me. He was so proud. He says, I even get a magazine with this. He said, I saw a really cool thing in this magazine I thought you might like to hear. It was, it was entitled, America's Deadliest Critter. I want to read this to you, just real quickly. America's 10 Most Deadliest Critters. Coming in at number 10 are sharks. Deadly attacks by sharks are extremely rare, about one every two years, resulting in an annual death rate about 0.4. Number nine, mountain lions. Deadly attacks are rare, but they do happen but only slightly more than sharks. It's about 0.6 every year. Number eight, it's, it's not surprising unless you expected it to rank a little bit higher, but at 1.4, people die for years because of attacks of alligators. Shoot them, shoot them, you know what I mean, yeah. I haven't seen that show in a while. Anyway, number seven will be the first surprise. 4.3 people die every year. Because of accidents. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's not good to die because laugh because people die. It's just they die because of accidents caused by birds, okay? <laughs> Someone told me that the reason why, and how many of y'all have watched that Alfred Hitchcock movie, The Birds? Young people, you're here, get on Netflix tonight, watch it. It'll scare you to death. You'll watch out. You'll be hiding from every bird you see. Is that not true? I remember as a little kid, I was eight years old when I watched that for the first time. I was scared that every bird I saw flying by, I was running home as fast as I could get there. They said the reason why this is that is because they, they, they attack, uh, they run into aircraft and cause wrecks and things like that. Number six, snake bites. 18 people die every year because of snake bites. I don't like snakes. Please don't bring one to me, okay? I don't, I don't want a snake, okay? Number five, man's best friend. 20 to 28 people die every year because of attacks by dogs. Number four, (laughs) 24 people die every year because of accidents related to cattle. (laughs) I'm thinking to myself, you know, Chick-fil-A, are they falling out of the grave, hitting people on the head? What's going on? (laughs) Running into your car? I don't know. Cattle. Until I remember the fact that I was working with my grandfather one day when I was, gosh, probably 15 years old, and I used to wrestle. My grandfather says, son, I, I need to fix this calf up here. He said, I need you to go and get it for me. And he was in his pen. I started chasing him around. I got hold of the back of him like that, and I slid down the back, and he kicked me in the forehead and knocked me out cold. My face is laying in manure on the ground, and my grandfather's going, get up and go get him. I'm going, where is he? I can understand that one in there, okay? All right, number three, wastings, bees and hornets. 53 people per year die because of that. Number two, 106 people die annually because of injuries resulting from encounters with horses. Guess what the number one 
most dangerous animal in America is? Deer. Bambi. How many of y'all hunt deer? You're patriots. We want to thank you for getting rid of the scourge of that. And then what do you do? You kill it, you grind it up, and then you eat it just to prove you can conquer it, right? Yeah. yeah. Then you put the head on the wall and you hang stuff from it. Yeah. Deer, Bambi, is the most dangerous animal in America. Can you believe that? I mean, come on, they're all over our neighborhood. They eat everything in our garden. You know what I'm talking about. They do, and we, we, and we see them all. Oh, they're so cute. They're so nice. And they're just waiting to hit somebody's car, you know? You ever ran over a deer before? I have. It's no fun. That idiot deer ran across the road. I slowed down to let him go, and I hit my gas, and he backed up in front of me. Did $3,000 worth of damage to my car. That was in Indiana. Ohio, if you do that, they'll load it in your trunk and let you go home and eat it. In Indiana, you have to call the police, have to pick it up, and they take it to the local homeless shelter and stuff. So, but my insurance didn't like it very much. But the point is, is we underestimate the real enemy. We see Bambi, we think, oh, that's so cute, until, of course, a bunch of guys wearing orange getting their tree stands in the fall. You know, but anyway, we underestimate the enemy. Number three, have we lost track of our vision and purpose to follow him regardless of the cost? What did he say? What did he say? Joshua said here, he said, he said, basically, you know, uh, he said, Lord, but why would you put us here? Why would you not keep us on the other side of the Jordan? So he started asking the question. He lost, he lost track. See, you see the progression here. You relax. Then what do you do? You underestimate the enemy. You allow the enemy, because you relaxed and dropped your guard, the enemy to come and do whatever he wants to. Then all of a sudden you lose your vision and purpose for what direction you're going. So here's Joshua facing this. 36 men lost their lives. That means 36 wives, their, their, dad, their husbands did not come back. Hundreds of kids, their dad did not come back. And he's looking at this. And his response is, Lord, why did you bring us over here? Why couldn't we just been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan? What did they eat on the other side of the Jordan, by the way? You remember? Manna. What is manna? Manna is bread without leaven. It's, you can bake it. You can fry it. You could even barbecue it. You can put sugar on it, whatever you want. But after a while, it's just manna. How many of you guys like, like buffets? Yeah, me too. I like buffets. I've never figured out why they put salads at buffets. That's just a waste of space, isn't it? Come on, you're going to pay 10 bucks to go eat salad, right? Yeah, I mean, that just don't make sense to me. It don't. I mean, salad is not food. Salad's what food eats, okay? Just remember that. <laughs> but guys, I mean, come on, fill that spot up with more meat or banana pudding or something, you know? We don't go to buffets because we want to lose weight. Come on, go on, it's the truth. If you're on Weight Watchers, you don't go to a wallet buffet. I've been on Weight Watchers for three years. I don't go to buffets, okay? I don't. But here's the deal, though. It's, you know, I prefer a buffet than I had to eat manna, right? So what he's, what he's saying is God's saying, I'm giving you a buffet, a, a land that flows with milk and honey. I'm going to give you all of this. And Joshua's first thing is to take his eyes off the goal and to turn around and say, well, let's just retreat. Let's just run back here. Let's just hide. God, why can't you kept us over there? Let me tell you something, church. Let me say this to you. As we go forward, we can learn from our past, but we cannot be defined by our past. We must not be caught in our past. We must be seeking to go forward in what God wants us to do. We cannot lose the vision. I want to say this to you point blank. I love Jeff. He is a very close friend of mine. 
I'm thankful that he's allowed me to be a part of a mentor in his life and those kind of things. And he's a godly young man and a phenomenal family and all those kind of things. But what God started here, God started here. He used Jeff as an instrument, as a part of that. But, he, but because Jeff has left, God does not want that to stop. He wants us to continue on. If you want to honor him and honor our Lord, the best thing we can do is keep our vision and keep going forward and not continue to try to live someplace else. That is exactly what we're called. We cannot lose our vision. Number four, look at this. Look at this. Have we focused too much on pleasing ourselves rather than God, God, the I factor? If you look at verse eight, what does he say there? He says, what are we going to do for our great name, God? You see the progression here. We drop our guard. We ignore the enemy. Then we lose our vision. Then all of a sudden we start thinking about ourselves. That's what happens. People start interfighting and bickering because that was it. And that was what happened. He said, Lord, what am I going to do with our great? In other words, Lord, they just did a special for me on me and CNN and Fox News and, and, you know, and all these things. We're about to release the book. What if they found out that we got beat by I? That would ruin my reputation. He was thinking about himself. That's what we do. That's what God, that's what Satan wants us to do is only focus on ourselves. It's never been about us, guys. It's about surrendering to him and letting God have control in what he wants to do. We can't lose our vision. You see the progression. When we lose our vision, we start looking at ourselves. Well, I don't like this. I don't like that. I don't like this. I don't like that. I don't know. Preacher preaches too long. He preaches too short. That preacher is too short. That preacher's too tall. That preacher, he don't have enough hair. He's got too much hair. The preacher has this. Don't you hate the way he combs his hair over like this? Preacher pulls his pants up too high. Oh, they're too low. His pants are too tight. His pants are too this. I mean, people start focusing on their opinions. Let me share something with you. I want to ask you a question. I'm 55 years old. I, I, I'm not going to ask him any of you are my age or older. I'm just going to ask you, has God ever sent any of you an email, tweeted you, Instagrammed you, sent, you know, wrote something on your Facebook? Has God ever asked any one of us in this building our opinions, yes or no? Why? Because he's God and we're not. We need to understand that. Guys, what happens when you start focusing on yourself? You can guarantee that's the sign of the sickness. It's a sign of the sickness because when we, we stop being a team, we stop being a congregation, we stop being a body, we stop doing that, and we start just focusing on ourselves, we can't do that. That's exactly what happened here. Next step. Not only that, the next step is we start to pass the buck of responsibility. But playing the blame game. Come on, we've seen this, don't we? We lose our sight. We start focusing on ourselves. Then it's like a little kid was handing the cookie jar and he got caught and says, Bobby told me to do it. It's his cookie. I'm getting out of here. And what did he say? He says, Lord, what are we going to do for our great name? And then he points and he says, look at verse 9. He says, look what he's going to do for your great name. In other words, God, it's your fault we're in this mess. You brought us over here. How did you let us lose? And all the time he's trying to put on a good show because he's got ashes on his head and he's laying down and he's trying to act like he's really mourning but he's lost focus and lost purpose and lost direction. Let me tell you what the real problem was. Look at the next one. What does he say to him? He says, Joshua, get up. Get up, my son. Get up, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. 
They violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They've taken some of the devoted things. I told you not to do that, and you did that. God's not being mean. God is being faithful. If God is going to be faithful to us on everything in our life, he has to be faithful also when it comes to holding up his standard. You see, here's the reason why the light's going off on America. It's because we have dropped God's standard completely, totally. We've adopted our own standard, and we've rationalized that it's okay to have that standard. When God is saying, no, America, stand up, for you have sinned. Stand up, church, for you have sinned. Stand up, brothers and sisters, for we have sinned. Stand up, O Israel. He's telling him right here. He's saying, Joshua, stand up, for there is sin in the camp. Sickness is sin, guys. I talked about this last week and talking about men being stronger in their families. Standing up and doing the right thing. One of the things that Jim Simbler talks about is, he says, we've totally exiled the concept of righteousness from the body of Christ. We simply just want to gather together crowds and, and bring people around and make them feel comfortable in who they are. And we're afraid of speaking the truth because we're afraid they go someplace else so they can get comforted more and those kinds of things. And he's exactly right. Guys, listen to me. If we can feel comfortable in our sins, something's seriously wrong with us. We should be different than the world. We should be different than the people around us. I'm not talking about being judgmental. I'm talking about we should, be, we should be different. We should seek holiness and righteousness. We should seek his face and, and who he is. We should want to be like Christ. That's who we should want to be. God has laid down standards for us to live by. Let me share this with you, and I'll preach a message probably here in several months to talk to you guys about, particularly about how do we understand God's will? What does it take to understand God's will? Let me tell you the first step to understanding God's will is to do what God's already told us to do. He's already told us to be righteous and holy. He's given us his great command to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and body and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Are we doing that? We want God. See, the, here's, here's the problem, guys. Here's the problem is that we want authority with no responsibility. We want the blessings of God, but God, don't ask me to do anything for it. I'm talking to myself here. I'm just as guilty. We want to try to answer it by, by, by reading this and getting that and doing something else and, you know, and, and whatever it might be and trying to work ourselves up to some kind of emotional frenzy as if, as if somehow that's going to fix everything. No, what's going to fix it, guys, is when the, our nation and our churches and our people get on their faces broken over the sin of our land and sin of our world and seek God's face and seek to be his examples and open ourselves up and let God fill us up with his Holy Spirit that he might live through us. That's what it's going to take. The light can only shine when it's unimpeded by what's in front of it. We should be so transparently filled with the Holy Spirit that the light of Christ shines right through us and everyone sees that. Why would we hide it under a bushel? Come on, you remember when you were a kid, don't you? Singing up in front of church and we used to sing that song, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. I remember that. You know why I remember that? Because I remember one night when I was four years old, I got to sing up in front of our church, and my brother, who was five years older or seven years older than me, he was 11 at that time, came up to me right before we went to church. He said, David, tonight, if you want to make mom and dad happy, sing that at the top of your lungs. And so I'm standing up here in the church right here in the middle of this little cotton little head kid with his, you know, everything looking so goofy, and, and I'm singing, this little light of mine, I want to let it 
Passion! My mom and dad are sinking under the seats. But I'm going to tell you something. Guys, we have got to let the light of Christ shine through us. We have to clear out our spiritual arteries and deal with reality of who he really is. God's nature has not changed. We talk a lot about being relevant and all these kinds of things. The gospel is just as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago, as it has always been. People are searching for answers. That's exactly what they're doing. They're trying to fill a vacuum in their soul with something that will never last. You cannot medicate that away. Only Jesus can do that because he created us. Only God can fill that void. Guys, we have to take sin seriously. We have to. Next. We've forgotten the seriousness of sin. And finally, like Achan, he was the one who stole everything. He's the one who hid everything in his tent. He's the one who brought down this judgment. You can say, well, that's not fair. One man did that. Why do these other people have to die? Because God laid down the standard for that. I want you to understand the principle right there in the middle. We never sin in a vacuum. Come on, how many families are destroyed? Because family members aren't faithful to each other. How many times after 35 years of ministry have I stood with a family in a room and their child is, who wouldn't listen to them, who thought they just didn't know what they were doing and kept sneaking out of the house and took the car and flipped it and now they're going to be paralyzed the rest of their life and mom and dad are going to have to take care of them. Why would God let that happen? God didn't want you to steal that car. God didn't want you to. He wanted you to obey your parents. Sin has consequences, guys. Well, that's not fair. See what I mean? We want authority without responsibility. Am I right? Yes or no? Guys, we don't sin in a vacuum. Come on. Remember the 80s when we had all those very public falling of, of, of evangelists in our culture, in our community? And how the evangelicals were made fun of over and over again, particularly us who were pastoring at that time. You're just like them. They threw us all into the same boat, in the same pond together as if because you never sin in a vacuum. You don't. You don't sin. See, Satan has convinced us that what I do is my business. I can do it, and it's, all, it's, it, it's not your business. It is my business if it affects my life, and it will. If it affects the body of our church, if it affects the families, who we are, we don't sin in a vacuum. That's the lie of Satan. Go ahead, do whatever you want to. It don't matter. Have a good time. Whatever y'all want to do, it don't matter. Oh, but we don't sin in a vacuum. We hurt the people we love the most. Guys, Achan was only thinking of himself. Do you see the progression? We drop our guard. We underestimate the enemy. We begin to lose our vision. We start thinking about ourselves. Then we pass the buck and the blame. And it all comes to the fact that we're caught in sin. But Achan probably thought, you know what? No one will know. 
They'll not see this. You ever, you ever noticed how many bars have all the windows tinted in and painted in? I remember going to Fort Worth and Southwestern Seminary. You passed about seven strip joints if you went down one of the Hemphill Avenue to get there. Not a one of them had clear windows so you could see what was happening on the inside. Why? Because the lights are off. We've got to be careful, guys. The good news is that we have the light of Jesus to shine through that. We have to hold on to him with everything we've got. We have to. Would you bring up the final things for me there real quickly? Just a few helpful suggestions. Number one, bring it up. Protect your heart. Pure water only flows from a pure stream. Charles Spurgeon had a statement years ago. He said, you'll never get pure water from a rusty crank. If we're not right with God, what will spew out of our life will not be God. It'll be tainted. That's not what we want. Number two, do not rationalize or compare your sin or actions to other people. You see, what's the Bible say? The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of David, of Daniel, of Fred, right? No, the Bible says, for all have fallen short of the glory of who? Who? Because it's his standard, right? Not ours. Protect our heart. Stop comparing ourselves to everybody else. Stop looking at everybody else and saying, I'm just as good as so-and-so. I'm just as good. No, 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 no. Guys, d- d- don't do that. Don't judge Jesus based upon misguided folks. We are to stand before God. That's what this is. Number three, realize that by nature, there are consequences to every choice we make, good or bad. 36 people lost their lives because one man, in a moment of weakness, decided, I'm going to steal this stuff and don't think anybody. He was able, think about this, he was able to hide it, take it, when all these people were around, hide and hide it, and take it out where nobody could see. He thought, boy, I've escaped, man. I've got this done. Kind of like the guy sitting late at night in front of his computer, looking at images that he shouldn't, thinking that it won't impact his life or his family. Yes, it will. It'll destroy it. I'm so tired of seeing pornography destroying our families and destroying our homes we think it's a victimless crime, go, to, go visit a prison sometime and ask those people who have sexual, there for sexual reasons, and they'll, almost 100% of them will tell you it all started with pornography. Why do we think that if we, we put perversion in our mind and our heart, that somehow purity is going to flow from it? No. Next one. Receive wisdom. Do not blow it off. It is for your own good and personal safety. We need accountability. I challenge you. I'm going to give you a thing in the next month or two on some accountability, but I challenge every one of you. Do you have people in your life? I'm not talking about you need someone outside of your spouse, somebody that some other men and women in your life, ladies, some women and guys, some men in your life that will ask you some hard questions, to ask you if you looked at anything you shouldn't look at, if you did anything you shouldn't say, if you said anything you shouldn't do. You know, are you being faithful? Are you doing what you need to do? You need accountability in your life. We all need accountability in our life. We do. We need people to ask us the hard questions. Let me share something with you. My pastor gave me the greatest definition of love I've ever heard. I want you to remember this. 
He said the greatest definition of love is telling people or giving people what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. Because it takes love to look at someone and say, I love you enough to tell you what you really need to hear. That's what Jesus did with the rich young ruler. Look at it when it says, he says, and he loved him. And then he said, go sell everything you've got. Why? Because he knew the rich young ruler, his heart was not where it needed to be. And if he wasn't willing to sell his stuff, that he would never become what he needed to be by compromising what Christ desired. No. Next one. Ultimately, make up your mind to follow Christ and then join him on mission and grow his church. Then do it. It has never been about us. I'm going to ask us to get ready for the invitation. Daniel, if you want to come down and you guys get ready. I'm going to ask you to do me a favor this morning. I'm going to ask you not to walk out the back door or anything like that. To just Let's just take some time. I want us to process for a few minutes here, if we can, what, what God's saying to us. Where are we in this? Where are we? Where are we in this? What point are we? Have we dropped our guard a little bit? Have we? Have we focused too much on I? Have we started blaming God? Are we angry at him? Come on. Have we? What's, what's really holding us back? Is there secret sin in our life that doesn't need to be there? You say, wait, now, I thought you said you were just going to talk about prayer. Let me tell you something. You can't hit your face in prayer until you understand the reality of who we are. The point of prayer is not to change, not to change God, but to change us. The point of prayer is to get to know God. And the only way we can do that is by surrendering ourselves to him. And the very core of prayer is that God would bring us back as we repent. That's what this is about. Guys, we can't lose our vision. I'm asking you as a church. I know it's not easy. It's not. But I want you to know this morning, I love you guys. I love being here for vacation Bible school, Angela. I love being here for, 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 you know, getting slimed the other night for all that. Fred, I love you already. You and your sweet wife, Daniel. I already knew you. Lee, you guys, I'm telling you, I, I love you. I, God's going to do some great things in the days to come in this church. He's already doing it. But we can't do it separately. The Bible says, where there is no vision, my people perish. That literally, that word is, where, there, where, the, where, in other words, it means where there is no vision, the people scatter. That's what happens a lot of times when a pastor leaves. People will go someplace else and shop around. Listen to me. Guys, your commitment here is to Christ. It's not to anything else. It's what God is doing in this place. And I believe with all my heart that God has great things in store for the days to come. Don't you? I believe that he does. But I believe we as a church have to realize we can't do what the children of Israel did. We can't lower our guard. We can't back up. We can't lose our vision. We've got to keep going forward. We've got to stay on our knees and stay on our faces. We've got to stay faithful to each other and to our homes and our families. And stay faithful to God. So this morning, I'm going to open up this altar. If you've never received Christ your personal Savior, or if you need to make a decision public this morning, I'm going to ask you to come. I'd love to tell you how you can do that. If you'd like to come this morning and simply just kneel and pray,
and ask God to, to Lord, to, to, to ease my spirit because it's just, it's roaring, Lord. I, you know, Satan's been trying to take my, my, my eyes off of the prize of what Jesus wants for my life and I'm losing my vision. God, no, 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 no. Whatever God's dealing with you on this morning, I would invite you to come. That's what we do as a family. And if you need someone to pray over you, if you'll let me know, we'll pray over you. My last interim, we stopped several times on Sunday morning and right in the middle of the service, we just prayed for people. Oh, that sounds weird, awkward. No, no. It was amazing to watch our people gather around. The Holy Spirit would just show up. Because that's what the body's for, isn't it? Isn't it? That's what it's for.